West Virginia is a state home to many paranormal stories. It is full of secluded places, tragic deaths, and abandoned areas that are exactly where those stories come from. Many famous sightings have occurred at places like the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, and the West Virginia Penitentiary. The tall mountains and deep valleys are home to ghosts of all kinds, like the Greenbrier Ghost and the Lady in Red. West Virginia has even been ranked in the top 10 states with the most paranormal or ghostly encounters to happen in a 2022 study by Ghosts of America. October is home to the holiday of Halloween, commonly associated with ghosts, ghouls, the supernatural, and all things frightening. With Halloween right around the corner, the spirits of the season are ready to be uncovered. In this paranormal episode of Crime in the Coalfields, we'll be stepping away from crime and cold cases and instead bringing you highlights of a few of the ghost stories from around our area, all in the spirit of Halloween. Welcome to this week's special edition of Crime in the Coalfields. I'm your host, Izzy Post, and every other Tuesday, we research and compile the most notorious, most unknown, and the deepest cases in West Virginia. Once again, we're getting into the Halloween spirit for the second time this month by continuing our dive into the paranormal. Crime in the Coalfields is an exclusive podcast produced by 59 News, sponsored by Rosenquestenberry Funeral Chapels and Notoriously Morbid. When originality is everything, Notoriously Morbid has you covered. We offer a full array of exciting cosmetics, and if alternative clothing is your style, we have it. Check us out online or stop by. Notoriously Morbid. Embrace your beautiful darkness. How would you like to relieve the emotional and financial burden off of those you love, express your own wishes, and avoid conflicts among family members? Call Sandy Evans at Rosenquist and Barry today. This week's episode, we're bringing back a familiar voice to highlight some of the paranormal stories in our area. Raleigh County historian and ghost expert Scott Worley. West Virginia is a state known for its beautiful attractions and stunning sights, but it also has a sinister and extraordinary history. Paranormal happenings are a large part of that history and Scott's specialty. Last week, you'll remember that we covered the overall story of Zona Heaster Shoe, the Greenbrier Ghost. If you haven't heard it yet, give it a listen to stay caught up on this story. Today, Scott joins us to give us a little more insight about her tale. What? How did you take your spin on the Greenbrier Ghost? So we talked about her her story, how her husband was convicted of murder through her testimony to her mother and how she came back to her mother as an apparition. And that's what they used to convict him. Right. So one of the things that, um, you know, on the Greenbrier ghost story, on, on Zona, uh, Easter Shoe, she, um, you know, when she was um, murdered, they, um, you know, supposedly she fell down the steps and uh, broke her neck. And... What I find really fascinating with that is the fact that 
you know, people just take her husband's word for it that, you know, he found her there, he takes her back upstairs, puts her in bed, changes her clothes, won't let anybody near her. And, you know, to me, that's, you know, that's, that's odd that, you know, everybody would just kind of buy his story and give him that kind of, you know, that kind of room to, to uh, keep everybody away from her. Um, and, you know, of course, later on, whenever uh, Zona appeared to her mother and and told her that, uh, you know, he had he had choked her, that he had, you know, was responsible. And they finally did the inquest and they were able to examine the body and they, they obviously they found the marks and such. You know, it's it's uh, uh, at that time, I guess they just took whoever's word for it whenever they found you know, a deceased person in the home and say, this is what happened. What does that say about how women were treated and, and, and dead people, for lack of a better term, were treated back in that day when nowadays yeah. that would very clearly be a homicide? Yeah, exactly. They would, you know, you know, nowadays they would immediately look at the husband, right? Um, and and I'll, actually one of the stories I'll, I'll relate to you here in a bit, it, it kind of has that same vein about it. Um, but with, um, you know, obviously in in the, the case of the Greenbrier Ghost, one of the uh, interesting things there is they they believe that uh, her husband may have been guilty of, of murdering his previous wife in a similar vein. So you would have thought that really uh, there should have been more scrutiny right up front with, with you know, looking to see hey, you know, let's check into this guy's background. Nobody really knows him. He just moved here, that sort of thing. Do you think that that was just a symptom of gross negligence, or do you think that maybe that was intentional? Uh, I think it was just, just negligence. And, and you got to remember, at that time, um, uh, d- domestic violence was not um, was not uncommon. You know, um, a, a lot of times it was almost... Uh, seen by authorities as something you didn't you didn't even interfere with more or less and, and that's that's a sad commentary but it's a you know we, we hear about it over and over that you know in a lot of cases in, in some of your communities there would be a group of vigilantes that would seek revenge on uh, ladies that were experiencing domestic violence that would, you know, go after their partner or their husband and and get revenge, and it wouldn't be in the hands of the law. Have there been any sightings of Zona since, or once her husband was convicted, was that it, and, and her soul was released? Did do we know anything about that? We we've had uh, folks that that used to visit the the former uh, the former home, and they would. Re- report seeing apparitions standing looking out the window wearing a, a, a long whitish gown just like they were they were looking for someone to approach the house uh, like they they had they wanted to get somebody's attention um, and also we've heard that uh, that she may haunt the uh, courthouse there in Lewisburg the old section of the courthouse where the trial would have occurred she, you know, she's been uh, uh, someone who, who resembled her has been seen quite often there.
We asked Scott to enlighten us on more chapters in West Virginia's dark and paranormal history. And he was glad to tell us about some of his favorite stories. There are similarities between the story of Zona Heaster Shoe and one of Scott's all-time favorite ghost origins. A man murdering his wife and assuring everyone he was innocent. Well, one of my all-time favorites um, goes back to 1887. And in 1887, a fellow by the name of William Martin killed his wife. Now, when it, when it occurred, it, it was here in Raleigh County. He proclaimed innocence, of course. Um, and there was not a whole lot of um, evidence that he had, he had no alibi or anything. Uh, and in fact, he fled the jurisdiction. He went to Floyd County, Virginia for a while. And he was apprehended about 1890. And he was brought back to stand trial. And again, at his trial, he pled innocent. He, he said he did not kill his wife. He was not responsible. But because he had no alibi, there was, um, uh, you know, nothing he could say to sway the jury. He was found guilty and was sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. Now, as he was placed in the in the basement of the jail across from the courthouse in in Beckley, in Raleigh County, um, awaiting his execution, he decided to call up the local newspaper editor and make a confession. And in his confession, which appeared on the front page of the paper, he said, I am guilty. I killed my wife. But I had a good excuse. She wasn't a good wife. She didn't keep a good house. She didn't have my supper ready for me when I would get home from working all day. And more importantly, when I was out working on a woodcutting crew, I found out that she was stepping out with the fellow that lived across the creek. Well, this is 1890. And folks thought a little bit differently then as they do now, and you know, particularly when it came to domestic violence and such that. So the, the sentiment in town became more of the fact that he was maybe not guilty of first-degree murder. Maybe he just flew off the handle and, and accidentally killed her. Maybe he didn't mean to. Uh, maybe it was just manslaughter. Maybe he didn't deserve to be executed for the crime. However, the, uh, you know, the jury had spoken, the sentence had, had been sent down, and he was sentenced to hang by the neck until dead. On October the 4th, the sheriff of Raleigh County, Sheriff Shoemate, pulled up in front of the jail in his wagon with a team of horses. And William Martin was let out in shackles. And he climbed into the back of the wagon where he sat on his own coffin. And they proceeded to go down the roadway to the place where the scaffold had been built on the old brickyard. But when they got there, there were thousands of people that had gathered from miles and miles around. They ran special trains, folks, because 
going to a public execution was a big tourist event in 1890. And they say that there was a preacher standing on the scaffold giving a sermon and a choir had been singing. As the, the sheriff takes his position, they, they place the hood over William Martin's head, the noose around his neck. And the sheriff looks out amongst the crowd and he says, if there was any man that will step here and do this duty for me, I will give them $500 in my team of horses. But not one person would step up. But what did happen is a shout goes up amongst the crowd. Set him free. Set him free. He is innocent. Well, of course, that can't happen. The sheriff opens the trap door and William Martin falls to the end of the rope. And he starts to kick. Now, according to the Wheeling Intelligencer, he kicked... For three minutes, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette said it was 11, and the local paper said he died instantly. But what we know for sure is that he was he was cut down and placed in his coffin that he had ridden to the site with, and then buried in the grave that had already been dug. And then the crowd descended upon the site, and they commenced to buy up pieces of the rope and, and splinters of the scaffolding, so they too could have a souvenir of the day. Uh, the, the newspaper editor had printed up broadsides of the confession and sold them for a nickel apiece to anyone who wanted to purchase them. And all was quiet for William Martin for the next 90 to 100 years. And then they were getting ready to build a new structure there at the old brickyard. And they had made preparation to have the body exhumed and when they went to exhum the body you know what they found they did not find William Martin not to be seen but what we do know is that William Martin has been seen on many many occasions walking around the site of his execution traveling up the road and, and walking across the rail trail there in Beckman and traveling down to the courthouse into the old jail. So when you see a man walking down the streets of Beckley with one head slung over to one side and a bad limp, or more importantly, if you're in the vicinity of what until recently was Wendy's Old Fashioned Hamburger on Robert Seabird Drive, because that is where you see William Martin the most because that was the place of his execution. He wasn't innocent, of course. He he murdered his wife. But the you know the the social mores of the day um, would would say that maybe if your wife wasn't living up to your expectations, that maybe you could punish her. Maybe you could push her around and and beat her. Maybe she just accidentally was was killed while he was in anger or in rage because her, his dinner had been late or uh, he thought maybe she was having an affair with a neighbor. What do you think does motivate a person to, to stay on? Uh, what motivates a spirit to, to be haunting a place or, or restless? The, there are so many factors that can can lead to why uh, a spirit may linger or haunt a particular place, and and it it 
obviously can be a place of, of great tragedy, a place where their death occurred or if someone was murdered, where their murder occurred. But it can also be, in a lot of cases, where folks had their happiest memories. They may want to, to go back and stay in the place where they had very happy memories. In, um, in a lot of cases, you know, they have, um, you know, if someone had great childhood memories, they, they may want to stay in a place where they had wonderful childhood memories. Um, you know, you, you hear a lot of stories about the, uh, the spirits that, um, you know, will, will linger, uh, in, in hospitals or, or places where they may have passed away. But the same token, we hear a lot of stories about people that are, you know, in their happy place, so to speak. What makes a ghost want to stay? You know, there are some people where they die and they go and that's that. And then we have stories like these where, where they stay. Is there a distinction as to why do, do good spirits with good intentions tend to stay less than spirits with bad intentions? Is there any reasoning of who stays and who doesn't? There, there's really no, nothing to point to now. What, what we do have is what we call an intelligent spirit that actually tries to interact with, with, with folks in present day that they run across. They will try to communicate, or they'll let themselves be known uh, by making sounds or appearing. But then we also have the residual haunting, which is something we see more and more is that the, the spirit is more or less on autopilot. They'll be walking the same pathway at the same time, or they'll be going in and out of the rooms at the same time, or um, possibly smoking a cigar or doing something that they wouldn't have normally done in life in a particular location uh, all the time. And it's like we, we are just walking through and experiencing them as they're walking through in uh, the same time. Our next story was that of Raleigh County's most famous ghost, the Lady in Red. She's a ghost with an identity that will forever remain unknown. Obviously, one of the, one of the most famous um, ghost stories out of, out of Raleigh County involves the uh, lady in red at the Raleigh County Courthouse. Um, our current courthouse was built in the 1930s and uh, because at the time there was no money available to expand that or to build a new courthouse, the uh, courthouse that had been built, the red brick courthouse in the 1890s, um, they got money from WPA to remodel the old courthouse, which they remodeled it so that you wouldn't even know the courthouse was there. In fact, the old courthouse is inside of our current courthouse here in Raleigh County. And if you go in the basement, you can see the red brick uh, courthouse that, that remains there. Well, almost from the very uh, first time that they opened the new courthouse in the late 1930s and started having trials there in the main courtroom, folks would see a lady wearing a red dress go across the back of the courthouse of the, of the courtroom and pass through a wall. And she would do it over and over um, along the same pathway. And these stories 
were passed down by jurists, by court stenographers, and by judges. Well, finally in the 1980s, as part of a new security system in the courthouse, they got closed-circuit television and video cameras. And lo and behold, on the closed-circuit cameras, they captured, on multiple occasions, the lady in red passing through the courthouse, going through the back of the courtroom and disappearing through a wall. Now, as we studied this and we, and we tried to capture this, uh, we went and we found the original blueprints of the new courthouse showing how it was built around the uh, existing 1890s courthouse. And in the back of that courtroom, at that time, there was not a wall there, but there was a doorway that went into a, a separate room. And the lady in red that keeps passing through the wall, if she would have been walking through the 1890s courthouse, she would have actually been walking through a doorway. And the lady in red has been seen, has been photographed uh, multiple times. I know when we do our ghost tours, sometimes downtown folks have caught a lady that looks like she's in red staring out the window from the main courtroom, looking down onto the lawn with us. And do we do we know who she is, or is she just the lady in red? She's just the lady in red. We've we've tried and tried to find any any reference to her. Um, you know, was she uh, was she someone that was there, a loved one, someone that's either on trial or that had been a victim? Was she possibly a clerk in the courthouse that is just walking the same path that she walked every day? But uh, she doesn't deviate a whole lot from her her path. Um, you know, if you, if you find the videos on, on YouTube, or it's almost like she's, she's just moving along following the same pathway every time. Well, and I'm sure that in your line of work, it, it, there are plenty of these cases where it becomes much more difficult to figure out who these people could have been, because sometimes I'm sure there are very few clues, if any, as to what their identities were. Well, particularly in, in, in public buildings, you know, it's, it's different if it's a, if it's a house uh, or, a, or a, a business that it was, um, that was well known for, for one occupant for a long time. You can, you can, you can figure that out. You can figure out who the, who the people may have been. But when it comes to, like I say, public buildings, uh, courthouse banks and those sort of things, there were so many people through there for so many different generations, it's really hard to, to pinpoint and say, well, this is the lady that it was. What's been your most personal experience with an apparition or a ghost or anything of the sort in your, your occupation or, or otherwise? One story that just always stands out that, that was, was very personal to me, and uh, this actually involved being at... Uh, the old Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Building downtown. And I was there early one morning with the executive director of the building. This is probably over 20 years ago. And the, we heard the sound of children playing. It sounded like they were in the main room. But it was 7.30 in the morning. All the doors were locked. And we went to, and opened the doors. And there was obviously nobody there except some of the children's toys that we had left there for uh, groups to play with. 
It was a large red ball that was rolling across the floor all by itself. Well, if you go back to the 1860s during the Civil War, that was the location where there had been a public well, and at a particular point in the war, the Confederate troops were retreating through Beckley down the, the road there from Fayetteville, and they had had stopped to try to slow the, the Union soldiers that, that were pursuing them. But the Union Army had fired cannon beforehand, and one of the cannon shots went along and landed there near the public well where children were playing, and one of the young girls was killed. Well, if you overlay the building plans with the plot from the 1860s, you can see that the public well was sitting at just about the same particular place where the ball was rolling. And that's, that's no coincidence. That's no coincidence. No. And in fact, there, there's a, a, a photograph that someone took of me while telling the story in the, the basement of that building right below the area where the ball was rolling. And there's a beautiful image of a full-body apparition coming down the steps of a young girl that's right behind me. Why do you believe or what does research show why these these hauntings that come back tend to be from that 16 to 1800s period? We don't we don't hear hauntings of somebody who died in in 2009 or 1995. It's all of this colonial times or earlier in the in United States history. Why does that time frame tend to stand out when it comes to the paranormal? Well, you know, one of the things that I always come back to is the fact that uh, maybe these restless spirits, they they wanted to continue to tell their story. And, and it was so much harder for someone to communicate and tell a story at that time than it is now. I mean, you know, in, in later years, we have, um, you know, so many ways to get a story out. People would write letters. People would uh, make confessions. They would... Uh, you know, they had all this media that they could get a story out on. But, you know, up until the, the, the mid-1800s, it was much harder to get your story in front of a lot of people or to be able to, you know, get your final final words out. Uh, and I think that's that might be a lot of it. People are still trying to get their story out. They want they, they want to be recognized or they want somebody to be able to you know, come back to him and say, oh, you know, we're, we're sorry this happened to you. Um, and, um, you know, we, we are seeing more of an uptick of, um, you know, stories from the, the 20th century uh, and above. But I think it's, it's more because of the fact that, that we are getting, um, you know, those stories are getting older and older so that, uh, you know, we're, we're also recognizing spirit activity more than we used to. Well, and maybe time has something to do with it as well. Could be. You know, there could be a, uh, um, uh, maybe a, a, maybe it takes a generation or two for the, uh, for the spirits to start uh, letting us uh, know where they are. Right, maybe when someone stops talking about them, when, when the descendants have passed. Whether we ever understand the paranormal or not, there are those who will always try to understand. 
Even for those of us who aren't experts, the paranormal makes for unexplainable stories and for great fun on Halloween. Thanks for listening to this week's spooky episode of Crime in the Coalfields. The paranormal can be found easily here in the foggy valleys of Appalachia. So we want to hear what you've experienced in West Virginia. Send us your stories of ghosts, hauntings, paranormal sightings, and more. And you could be featured here on the podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to let us know if you want a return of the paranormal again next year or even sooner. If you like Crime in the Coalfields, be sure to give us a good rating and recommend it to any true crime fans that you know or fans of the paranormal. Feel free to send in any suggestions or requests for content, and we'll work on including it in a future episode. This episode is an exclusive podcast experience presented by 59 News, sponsored by Rosen Questenberry Funeral Chapels and Notoriously Morbid. This episode of Crime in the Coalfields was written, hosted, and produced by Izzy Post and Harper Empsch with a special appearance by Scott Worley.